Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Sacorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We're here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. I'm Bob, and with me tonight are Mark. Good evening, everyone. And Jen. Good evening. Welcome, my fellow Keepers of Mysteries. Tonight, as the library opens, we take a suggestion from DM Kojo and look into Welsh folklore with Lloyd Alexander's classic, The Book of Three. Why don't you tell us about that, Mark? The youth Tarin lives in Caer Dalbin with his guardians, the ancient enchanter Dalbin and the farmer and retired soldier Kal. He's dissatisfied with his life and longs to become a great hero like the High Prince Gwydin. Due to the threat posed by a warlord known as the Horned King, Tarin is forbidden from leaving the farm and charged with the care of Henwin, the oracular white pig. When the pig escapes, Tarin follows her into the Forbidden Forest. After a long, fruitless chase, he is attacked by a host of horsemen galloping towards his home, led by the Horn King himself. He manages to escape, but drops wounded to the ground. He wakes to find his wound treated by none other than Gwydon, the crown prince of Priding's ruling house Don, who has been traveling to Caerdalbin to consult Henwin. Gwydon, determined to find the pig, takes Tarun along with him. Guided by Gurgi, a hairy humanoid living in the forest, they reach the Horn King's camp and learn that his target would be Caerdothal, the home castle of House Don. Gwydon determines to warn the royal court, but the group is attacked before that can happen. Oof. Oof, that was a tough one. My, my apologies. <laughs> oh no, this one's all Bob. Well, and Kojo. How about a little Welsh, Scarecrow? <laughs> Rude. That was easier to read than it was to pronounce, I will say that. It's a lot easier to read when you don't have to worry about butchering somebody's native language. I didn't get to the pronunciation guide in my copy until the very end. Oh, so that's helpful. I think I reinforced all my uh, my terms as I was going through and then only corrected them when I got back to the back. Yeah, this was a reread for me. I know I've read the book some time ago. This is probably the second time I've listened to the audios. But the audio narrator has a heavy British accent, which is kind of at odds with Welsh. So as a forewarning, which Bob really should have given our listeners at the beginning of the show... We're going to screw some things up and pronounce things weird and wrong, and it's going to rub you the <laughs> we'll wrong way, and we're going to start. <laughs> and then some. Yeah. So I'm going to gush, because I absolutely love this book, and I love the series, and I could not even tell you how many times I have read 
reread and reread again this series of books. I'll still never forget my mom bought me the set and I was looking at the first book, the book of three, and I was very confused because I was looking at the title and wondering what happened to the books one and two. Uh, (laughs) I didn't know. I was, I was young. I needed, I, I needed the books. But I, I just love this. I love the, the Welsh folklore, and it's just so much fun. And I think they hold up very, very well. I'm curious in, in terms of, like, is there, are there, like, two kind of main paths that people follow when they get entry into this kind of fantasy? The Tolkien and the Alexanders. In my experience, I, I had never read this, and it was never really introduced to me as a fantasy novel or, you know, it's something that I'd be interested in until I was an adult. And Tolkien was always what people referenced, you know, and, and what I got into. And I'm just curious, in your experience, is it typical for people to either read Lloyd Alexander and not Tolkien or to, to read Tolkien only. And then, you know, some of the subset that I get to get into Lloyd Alexander is a byproduct of that. For me, it was actually C.S. Lewis came first because of the animated Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Okay. At which point my sister had the books. And so I read that series. And from there I went to Tolkien and then my mother discovered these and gave me these. And of the three, these are my favorite. I mean, I, I like Narnia I like Lord of the Rings, but I think that the Chronicles of Prydain are sort of like Tolkien because it's high fantasy, but the characters don't break out into song every five pages. And I kind of like that. (laughs) And I'm actually finding a lot of parallels to Narnia with this one, except that this one's got a little bit more of the Welsh and the Arthurian legends behind them. Well, indeed. And with the Welsh folklore, let's see if I, speaking of butchering things, Mabin- Mabinagion? I hate you. <laughs> Mabinagion. Mabinagion? Either way. Mel um, There's four, essentially four books to it, and it is the Welsh folklore that Lloyd Alexander drew on. Prydain is probably named for one of the characters, Prydary. Makes and sense. And the original title of the first book was going to be The Battle of the Trees, which is the title of a Welsh poem featuring the Sons of Dawn led into battle against the forces of Iran. Yeah, and a number of the names I think are in the intro to the book or the version I had were common to the folklore, the tales, and especially like Prince Guidon or Gwydion. And it has a pedigree, I guess, that's that's very similar to like what Token was trying to do from a, a more English sense. It was curious that I found out, I didn't know this, but that he was an American. And right, I didn't know that either. <laughs> I was and, completely blown away that an American was writing about you know Welsh folklore. Yeah, it was it was very curious, especially when his peers, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, and you know to a certain extent some of the predecessors like uh, Lewis Carroll, and and they are all British and they're writing from a, a very particular point of view, and he, and he's approaching it you know because he loves that culture and maybe well, has and he has been stationed there. Oh, okay. He was stationed in Wales, and the castles and the folklore were things that he found very, very inspirational. Wasn't that during World War II? Mm-hmm. I thought I read that. But I, I never I never would have guessed it. And maybe that is why, while I use his pronunciations, maybe they're not correct. But uh, <laughs> oh, he tells this wonderful story about one of the inspirations before he had written this series. He had brought a harp back with him from Wales, and every time the temperature changed, the strings broke. Oh. And so he had this harp on his mantle that always had broken strings. <laughs> And that was part of the inspiration for Flitter Flam, who is essentially himself. 
I really love the harp. I am surprised it wasn't named. It was just the harp. It really was a character in and of itself. Well, as much as he was cursing that harp. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I will say that compared to other fantasy novels of the time, this one really is approachable for younger readers. There's very little material in it that is unsuitable. I mean, oh, most definitely. One of the biggest insults was, well, you may as well put caterpillars in one's hair. Hey, that that's actually a lot tamer than other stuff we'd been looking at. But by that same token, it's also striking me as a little derivative. I mean, they, there was a point where I was really reminded of the fairy mound from Three Hearts and Three Lions, which was published three years prior to this. And mm. that, that was uh, after they were released by King Idaleg. They were saying it was hard for them to believe that they were even underground. And it really reminded me of that scene where the main character in Three Hearts, Three Lions was in the fairy mound. But then the question is, is it really derivative of Three Hearts, Three Lions, or are they both derivative of the Welsh folklore, which is what Lloyd Alexander drew heavily on right. uh, in that and Arthurian? I was fascinated to find out that Fluter Flam is mentioned as a prince at the round table in Arthurian legend. Hmm. Well, he did mention that he was a prince from a long away place, but he didn't he was a like king, to talk but a, about it. But he was a small king. Yeah, I, I'm a yeah. king, but I'm a small king. I'm not like the high king. Well, yeah. I mean, come on, they, they're talking about an oracular pig, and I could never quite shake Charlotte's web from my brain. So, <laughs> right, some pig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and but you mentioned that sort of sense of derivation or, or derivative aspects, and in in my mind. It was Tolkien, right? There's so many parallels to the quest that they go through that are very similar to, you know, what happens in the Tolkien stories. There's the resurrection of the prince, you know, after he goes into the dungeon and he then can see through death or, you know, he understands it in a way that's very similar to like what happens to Gandalf in Tolkien. There's that figure that they meet that can talk to animals, right? That's Medwin. Sort of mm -hmm. like Radagast the wizard, you know, that they could do that. Or Medwin. Yeah. It, th that guy, the guy that you pronounce so well that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, that one's easy. Right. Or, or that, or the, the, the hobbits encounter who's, who's the bear shapeshifter. I mean, there's very similar kind of parallels and, and there's the dwarves that they encounter. But as I was getting through the stories and, and I was sort of reacting to, well, is it, is he really echoing Tolkien or more to Bob's point? Is it really more of that shared evolutionary lineage where you can trace back to in sort of the family tree point of view, a an ancestor for these things and they're telling tales in that same branch of that tree to me I, I kind of fall in the line that it's it's more of the latter that he may have read tolkien and since tolkien obviously came out with the hobbit many years before this and lord of the rings came out before this he may have been influenced by that but i think what he was drawing on are the legends that are foundational to uh, kind of in a Jungian sense even to these this common high fantasy and and i like that his even though it's similar and i could it echoed it. I like that he was focused on a different aspect of it. And, and he was also clearly doing a lot of research and callbacks to those original legends in Arthurian terms or Welsh. So it was presenting some unique elements. And so I, I think for me, it was it was nice to see that. But also, I think a little disconcerting at the, the first time I started going through the novel. And I was thinking, how much of this is just more Tolkien- in the sense of it's capturing something that was new and uh, and different in that high fantasy sense, and he wanted to partake in that same dialogue. It really does sort of, I think, tie into that shared folklore. And actually, in a lot of ways, we want to talk about books that it reminds me of. It reminds me of another children's book called The King with Six Friends by uh, an author named Jay Williams. 
Hmm. And it's essentially the the king has lost his kingdom. He goes on a quest. And as he progresses, he meets another person that can do a different thing. And this story is is certainly an advanced version of that as he meets Gurgi and and Fluterflam and, and everyone else. He kind of progresses picking up this entourage as he goes when he is really just, uh, you know, a, a young gong farmer. I mean, uh, you know. Big, big bird. Uh, you know, assistant pig keeper. The last book in the series, The High King, was awarded the Newbery Award in 1969 for outstanding contributions to American children's literature. And because of that, he ended up as the author in residence at Temple University from 1970 to 74, where he said he got to feel like being the visiting uncle that everybody wanted to talk to. Hmm. Now, you mentioned some of the characters that are joining up with the gong farmer turned hero. <laughs> I gotta say, I I really appreciated the fact that Gurgi was not given his own description so much. You know, there were very few actual descriptors used to say this is what he looks like. And they focused instead on his habits, on his attitude, on his vocalizations, because everything had to rhyme. Everything was munchings and crunchings, uh, slings. Well, and, and physically, he's very archetypal. I mean, he's the archetypal hairy wild man that so many cultural lores are filled with. Yeah, I will admit to having a little image of the monster from where the wild things are in my head. <coughs> Okay. <laughs> I'm juveniles it sounds that's just the general theme that they kind of gave him is just this little hairy creature dude okay we can work with that but then there's poor Dolly the the little dwarf who could never go invisible <laughs> just <laughs> so I, I think I mentioned this as part of our pre-discussion but I started as part of my um, uh, read through of this story, I started reading this with my kids. And I, I think one of the things I want to point out that kind of echoes on what you said, Bob, is that this is a much more approachable storytelling the aspects that within some of the other works that we've read that is very suitable for children and the kids really enjoy it. And so I think it's been very fun to see that aspect of, of a high fantasy, getting to share that with my own kids. And just, just for any listeners out there that are looking for something that might be a good introductory novel, especially if your kids are an age where you are reading to them still, this is a good one because it's, it, if you try to read Tolkien to your kids and you, <laughs> you, you, get to, you, and you can, and you, and your kids are listening after the first couple of pages of what is a hobbits and, you know, and, yeah. and, and then of course there's all the songs and everything like that nobody it's, reads tolkien to their children they just play the bbc audios <laughs> that's right <laughs> the language is very approachable but i would also say that the characters are simplified in a sense i think maybe jen this kind of gets in the in in what else you were saying is that i i think that they're they're painted with some very notable but one note kind of strokes you know they each have a sort of a tick or a characteristic you know, that are sort of defined characteristics that they go carry forward throughout the novel without a necessarily a real arc in other than maybe the main character, the main protagonist, you know, there, there's little there's to sort of distinguish them from beginning to end. You know, oh, this, this there, was written as a children's book. There's not exactly. a lot it, of character growth either, except for Terrence. Right. Terrence is, is the main arc and he, and he has, yeah, he has a he has a growth. You could argue that Gwydion has a little bit of that, but he is such a you know, messiah type figure or a, you know, a figure that's that's outside the, the normal realm of experience. It's hard to approach him as a, a relatable character. But I think it works well for a kid's story because those types of characteristics, like the munchings and crunchings, the repeatedness of 
Alanwi's, you know, she's she's very one note, but she's very you know sort of consistent in in could Constant. be a turn off for some people. She's <laughs> constantly making the nonsensical comparisons. All of the characters experience growth over the series, but in, oh, in the span of, of two hundred pages, not um, so much. And I apologize, Gurgi shows some definite character growth as well. Mm-hmm. That's true. He, has, he, he does have a redemptive arc in this story. And, and I'm very eager to, to see what the rest of the novels bring. I, I was, when I got done with this one, I, I immediately started reading the next one because I was, you know, I, I like the story enough and I wanted to keep expanding what my kids' experiences of it are by sharing that with them. So I was, I started reading the next one and I, I think that's a sign of a good novel and fantasy novel in itself. So, Oh, yeah. Well, let's let's move on to the things that we pull from this and uh, and stat. Sounds good. Because I mean, when I read all of these, all, all the entire series, the thing in the series that terrified me as a, as a kid and still creeps me out as an adult were the huntsmen, hmm. the men that were mystically bonded together in groups, and if you killed one, the others gained their strength. Mm-hmm. Was that in this story though? Uh, the huntsmen appear in this. They don't go into it a whole lot, but the huntsmen oh, okay. appear. Okay. And it's one of those things where picture creating an encounter where there's five attackers and they're each one hit die, but then you kill one and they all become two and you kill the next one. They all become three hit dice and they just get stronger as they go as you're getting weaker. Oh my God, that terrified me. The, I'm going to butcher this, but it's a bird like thing anyway. The Gwithaints, Gwithaints, mm-hmm. the big flying buzzard vulture demon birds and they're aron's eyes yes you know what they see he can see uh, well and aron is a patron or the cauldron born okay the the cauldron born are super creepy here because they're completely silent so even mm-hmm. in battle, there's no sound. That was a really creepy description. That yeah, really freaked great. me out. Oh, yeah. They get creepier in the next book. I, I don't know. I've seen what you've done with them in ad and I don't know if I want to see you stat them up for DCC. You've seen me even <laughs> use them in Stargate SG-1. Oh, you can I, die now. I, I, did a, I did a campaign <laughs> with Aran as a ghoul lord, yeah. Um, the Sons of Dawn as a militant order. You know, there's this entire section in the, hmm. the Warriors portion of the book that covers militant orders. Why not do something with the Sons? of dawn mm. i mean any of the characters i mean come on tehran is a zero level pig herd uh, or maybe writing up oracular animals like henwen mm. yeah. yeah there's so many things that you can pull from this i mean what were you thinking jen you know i i still have this affinity for medwen he's the protector yeah. of animals he's like part noah and part <laughs> druid he's like the world's first vegan <laughs> <laughs> he could he could cook a mean steak, a venison steak, uh, out of vegetables. Yeah. Okay, that's a little weird, and I I glossed over that part. Apparently, <laughs> I was also thinking of doing Henwen, but as a magic item versus a creature. Oh, because Henwen is kind of the um, the talisman that they're in search of. Gurgi. I thought would be fun to do as a class, like minorly mutated beastmen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> class of Gurgis. It's funny, through Knights in the North, I just released a, a source book to essentially like Wild Men and Bigfoot, and, and we've got Gurgi. Oh, well, exactly. <laughs> I would love to do the harp as a magic item, but kind of a class of magic items with bonuses that are akin to lucky weapons once they're named. And cool. maybe like a, a chart of what type of uh, instrument you get, because there's no shortage of stringed instruments out there. Oh, that'd be really neat. <laughs> that would be really, really cool. 
And that harp was such a fun item that it was a recurring motif. And and obviously it was part of the character, but it had its own sort of like pleasant reward at the end. You know, when he, when he gets rewarded a string that will not break out of, out of the rest of the ones that are tied to his lies. I I thought it was a cool little character. Yeah. And and the not quite bard, bard. (laughs) The not quite bard, bard is a good class. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But always tying his strings together. Yeah. But every time he, he said something, you're just waiting for the next paragraph come on come on come on let it snap oh oh Twang. oh it didn't oh <laughs> <laughs> keeps you guessing what about you mark so uh, there were some some scenes that i really liked in the story and one of the things i thought of statting was related to the sword derwin just oh, because yeah. it, it is in the first book and i'm not sure if it, it probably does get more treatment in later books but in the oh, first yeah. book it's it's a very mysterious you know what is it exactly that it's you know releasing uh when it's unsheathed what are the the runes and the warnings you know what 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 is its history you know and, and who is it created by and, and i think you could use that as a basis for some of the magic sword templates that are within the gcc book and and build something you know using those tables oh, that definitely. would be be kind of intriguing Oh, yeah. But the idea also that, you know, when Arkren was uh, taking Gwydion's sword and attempting to break it against the pillar and getting so angry that she had to invoke some sort of terrible magic, you know, almost like a curse in order to cause this, you know, shattering effect. I I love that. A great example of like a dispel magic spell against a a magic item. She had to, you know, overcome the creator's uh, imbued magic in order to do that to some extent. Mm. and yeah. and really those kind of things of you know shattering magic items or breaking magic items it's it's kind of treated in it's referenced you know obviously in the dispel magic spell but i think there there could be some specializations or some special rules around that that you know, could invoke some additional materials for judges and players uh, to do especially you know kind of evocative of that scene where she's where she's trying to break the sword right because that sort of mechanic just kind of gets glossed over right right but it, it's it's a it should be a very powerful scene you know when that that happens you know it should be you know one of these things that she she really has to exert a lot of will to do so and and almost uncontrolled will because she's so angry well and if you think about it in context of of a dcc game because magic items let's face it are far harder to come by in a home game than they are in a published module uh, <laughs> and you might you might have that magic sword you know a thunder blade that you, that you've used it's become part of your everyday going into combat and then the villain gets the blade and shatters it mm-hmm. i mean that's some powerful stuff to happen at the table right yeah right it should be memorable and it should be one of those things that catches the players off guard just because they've earned that doesn't mean they don't have to protect that you know every day you know from not only from thieves and the common sort of brigands that might be wanting to take a stuff but from the powerful creatures that have this kind of you know, capability to destroy things. The cauldron barn, you mentioned that they would make a really interesting sort of stat to write up. The idea in general of undead that are unwilling or incapable of being felled by normal means in the, in sort of the terrifying aspect of that is something that I think would be really neat to promote in games. You know, you encountered undead. It's not just taking half damage from normal weapons or piercing weapons. It literally cannot be killed unless, you know, there is some greater power that makes the cleric or elevates what that cleric can do for the party in that sense. But just the terrifying aspects of this is unstoppable. We do not have the things that could even harm it even with our our spells we have to use 
some other force or find the source of what's driving that undead. And, it's a holding and, action until we can flee. Exactly. It, the fact that that's all that they could do, you know, that they were willing to do that because it meant possibly saving the lives of their companions. But, you know, I, I think that would throw a lot of players off guard if the undead is more unique in the sense of you cannot defeat it unless you have a more powerful, you know, divine sort of capability or you go and find the source of whatever is creating that undead and you destroy that and you have to find a way around it other than combat or combat is only a delaying tactic yeah i, I think the, the last thing that kind of caught my attention was the the idea of a war leader which is a new yeah. concept that was uh, you know that i just i love that word and the fact that it was like this role within the king's hierarchy and what you could possibly do that way that from like an npc standpoint and introducing sort of the welsh concepts potentially behind it this tactician this uh general or this warrior that really is the king's arm of might and that the fact that each of these kings have their own sort of specialized war leader that meets at councils uh leads their battles and and leads their armies and they have a reputation respect i, th- I think you could do some some interesting things with that from an npc's per- perspective or or possibly even like a title you know something that a, a warrior might aspire to even a, at a pc point the dcc book talks about you know how rare each level is mm. and how many people of each level there is generally going to be. And by the time you're third or fourth level, you are an incredible rarity. And certainly you could be called upon to be a war leader. Right. That adds a whole new layer to the game. Yeah. And, and you are really the person who's sent out on these dangerous scouting missions or you are sworn to a liege, but it, it influences what the types of things you can and can't do, who your enemies are and uh, and who you have to work with. So that, that would be intriguing, I think. Very nice. Very nice. So what would we put on the table or in the room? What sort of uh, props and audio would we look at? Jen? I would love to put out on the table a copy of the Welsh map. And just because it's gorgeous. In fact, uh, I believe Tim Deschane recently posted that he did the same thing. <laughs> so it's not a completely unique idea, but he just posted it while I was reading this. I'm like, hey, I know what that is. I think having a crown of antlers or even a set of antlers somewhere in the vicinity could be something you could just glance at every now and then as a judge and, you know, maybe make the players fear a little bit. On a funny note, I was thinking that they're out there trying to chase this pig and, and get this pig back. And so your pets could stand in for Henwen. Or small children, really. Uh, it's kind of a, a where's Perry moment. <laughs> and on the music side, I'm honestly driven to Turlo O'Carolan at this point. Yes, he was Irish and not Welsh. Um, he was actually a blind early Irish harper in the 16th and 17th centuries. But his compositions and the music he wrote, especially the Fairy Queen or Carolan's Farewell to Music... It's an old style of Gaelic harping, so it's kind of an, a broad Gaelic, Gaelic, if you will. It's not specifically Irish. It's the whole region. And for that time period, they do kind of blend together. And just the planksties and everything else that he put together would really work in the background of even the audio recording of this book. How about you, Mark? So I, I was really intrigued by the idea when Gwydion starts weaving his grass and then he puts it in his jacket and then only later is it revealed that it's a spell component. Ha, the fact yeah. that he's doing this and talking to Taryn about, you know, 
there are deeper aspects to this world than you may know. And, you know, it's it's only revealed later that he has some sort of enchanter ability about him. And so putting common items out there that are somehow usable by the players in some extent, or they can be discovered to be usable by the players, or even, you know, letting the players come up with sort of that creative solution to taking objects that are part of the environment they're in and describing how they are turning them into a net or turning them into a spell or turning them into something. I, I think that that's, that's kind of a storytelling element that would be kind of fun to play around with. It would be kind of a, a neat sort of, this is an enchanted place that you're in and the objects um, that are around you are things that you can turn into your spells or into special spells that you can, you have access to. You know, maybe everybody gets the chance to, to cast things as you're not trying to transform into a standard wizard spell. That kind of fun stuff, I thought just because the idea of weaving and, and keeping that object as a component was kind of a fun thing to have. And yeah, I, I think that besides that net of grass, you know, I, I couldn't really come up with any music that was in, entering in my mind. And I don't know if that's because it doesn't have such a deep Welsh voice. It's, it's, it's kind of like that American voice that I wasn't really thinking of the harps in the background or things like that. But you certainly have those kind of elements, you know, especially with the bard that is not a bard. And, you know, he has a, a harp that can almost play itself. You know, those kind of musical cues set up to where the PCs are interacting with different items and there are melodies that come across, you know, that are almost unwilled, but the PCs play them and the, and the PCs have to find out, you know, what is the the relation of that melody to what their their needs are, what the quest is. And and so you could do something, you know, with a variety of musical instruments, not just harps, but a, a series of things that they have to go through and, and, and make that part of the game session as well. But th- those are the kind of things that came to mind. So more things the players could be interacting with, you know, from, from a basis that are echoing from what's in the book. What about you, Bob? Well, uh, right off the bat, the ash sticks carved with spells. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The oracular letter sticks used by Hen Wen, I think, hmm. would be easy enough to make something. I mean, if you're doing it on the quick and dirty, it's popsicle sticks and, and marker. Or you could be using you know, wooden dowels and wood burning. You could do any number of things with that. Yeah, so you know Troy's totally going to show us up for that one. <laughs> <laughs> But also, one of the things that I always loved from the first time I read the series was Ilanwi's bauble. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid, I didn't really know that bauble was just sort of a catch-all term for, you know, it's a thing. It's a goo guy. It's a bauble. <laughs> uh, I didn't know that. I, I thought it was a proper name when I was a kid. You can buy essentially light up juggling balls that are made for juggling and for like nighttime poi. And so you can get a hand-sized sphere that when you turn it on is going to emit that golden light. And despite how annoying the character is, especially early on, there's a lot of really important things in all of the books dealing with Ilanwi's bauble. And I I think it's it's a good piece to be able to have at the table. Now, musically... This is where Jen and I disagree, because Welsh <laughs> is not Irish. And obviously, you need to go with Welsh music. No, now, Welsh, well, is Celtic. Welsh, Welsh is Celtic. No, no, Welsh is yes. Celtic. Welsh is Celtic. But, you know, <laughs> Ireland, Scotland, bloody sea in the middle. They're two separate things. Same with Wales. I know. You know. The Welsh aren't the Manx, aren't, aren't, aren't the Scots. But Welsh music, especially older Welsh music, tended to be a lot of harp music. And, uh, for example, the Song of the White Piper performed by Catherine uh, Finch. She, is a, as a harpist, performs a piece. It is from the earliest surviving manuscript of harp music in Europe, and that is 
Welsh harp. Wow. Yes, when you look at Ireland, you know, you look at Guinness, there's always a harp, but Welsh really ties into the harp. There's harp and ballads like the Five Love Spur, uh, sung by Anion Edwards. And to me, that's that's Flutter Flam. That's what he sounds like. It's mm. this harp, it's this beautiful Welsh voice going with it. There's the Welsh triple harp. Oh jeez. There's a piece called <laughs> Fingering Vamp by Robin Hubowen. I mean, the triple harp is, is an amazing instrument, and if you ever have an opportunity to witness someone playing it live, you want to do that. It is, I mean, the harp's not a simple instrument. The triple harp is absurdly complex, in my opinion, and it is amazing because it sounds like it is certainly far more than one person playing. There is uh, the folk ballad things, uh, the Song of the Rejected Maiden by Sean James, um, the Methier song performed by Cyrus Matthews that speak to to more of the Welsh common music, not not the bardic tradition of the harp, but the guitarist, the music at home, the music that might have been played just in a pub and among friends. And there is a band called Arlog, which translates to on a log and they were the first welsh international folk group and they released a number of albums and uh, a particular favorite of mine is arlog six because of course they're incredibly creative with their titles but you know it's welsh and so they're cutting everybody a break by just numbering them so by folk revival would you put them in the same group as like the chieftains for irish folk revival most definitely. Most okay. definitely. I, it, Just looking for that frame of reference. Yeah, Wales has, <laughs> has this really rich musical history and tradition. But I, I think that the, the books are great. And if you want to bring them to your table, if you want to really bring that atmosphere to life, this is a case where even though a lot of the harp music is light, although there is, there is some, some darker, more somber tunes, most of the Welsh harp music is light. It still behooves you to use that music and bring that vibe to your table, that level of authenticity that specific to Pridane and Wales is something you just can't pass. You have to have it, I think. Okay, then. Very cool, yeah. So, of course, if you're bringing things to your table and you're changing things around, what about inspirations and reskins? Mark? So my mind when I was reading this, and I think a lot of it was influenced by the references to Arwan and the kingdom that he has or that he once had and the fact that he's hiding treasures of men. And it's it's almost like an underworld or a, a hell type place. Uh, the anti-Prometheus. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and men have to steal what they can from him to take back into their world. And my mind kept going back to the pandemonium type planes of existence and especially the treatment that a lot of the contributors to last year's Gong Farmer did, where there were a number of different sort of representations of hells or different places where quests had to be done to go in and, and steal treasure or take something from them. It was, a, it was sort of a campaign toolkit and that you could build off of. One of those was one that was put out by Gwendolyn Harper. I think it was the the Cambian Queen, and it, it was one of the Pandemonia hexes that were in last year's, and it and it has, uh, you know, the Huntsman. It has this kind of Akron figure that's leading the Huntsman, and I thought that would be an interesting take on her realm being sort of a sub realm, almost that's implied somewhat in the books, and in the, at least in the first book, in terms of what used to be. Now that the world of men have taken this place over, and so I, I think you could use those especially the pandemonium resources, especially that as a starting point for exploring more of the darker elements of the world that used to be or the world that exists potentially within the realms of Arwan and, and his creations. 
Awesome. Nice. I think that you touched on this earlier, Bob, but Tarin is sort of a prototypical zero level character. And, <laughs> you know, his, his journey in many ways is, you know, reflects his journey from that funnel all the way to a maturation. And in the end, he's, he's has some heroic elements and he's very brave along the way, but he has to, in the end, take over leadership of the group in the absence of its true leader, you know, the one that he thinks is dead. And that's a very similar arc for what any PC is going through in, in a player's mind. That's a good representation. I think you could take some of that and take some of the existing zero level funnels. You have the starting point being that farm Instead, you know, whether it's an oracular pig or it's, you know, some other element that's the impetus for it, they have to go on their journey to go and discover it. And, and so I think there's a few of the zero funnels that you could reskin along that way. Portal Under Stars might be something that you could do where they are, for whatever reason, they, they have to go and chase after the magical pig that has now escaped into the portal and they are led in there and having to go through the different areas trying to find it. You know, you, you, could, you could make that a driving motive for a number of different zero level funnels in that way and sort of lightly reskin those to be more centered on on the story that's represented by Taran and the group that he eventually acquires. So those are what came out to me in my in my mind, besides the one I think that we were going to feature, which was the other <laughs> one that was always in the back of my mind because right. it's not to. <laughs> what about you, Bob? Taran is a pig keeper, so he's really, he's not a level zero, he's like a level 0. 0.5 because he's a step up from <laughs> Gong Farmer. But it's the sort of character that could be dropped into a funnel with ease, just like you could with Gurgi. And I think if I was going to do like a Predane campaign, I'd expand and, and alter the starting professions table based on mm -hmm. the entire series, you know, because later on in the series, you get to like the free comets where there's the weavers and all the various tradespeople. Of course, you could easily throw Shambling Undead. Just change the undead to Cauldronborn and let the citizens of Prydain fight their way through to escape. Yes, Ooh. you'd have Ooh, to change that's... the you'd have to change victory conditions since oh yeah, I can't kill them. But oh yeah, because that's one of the tournament. Mm -hmm. Oh oh man, that could be your Prydain funnel right there. Ooh. An attack by the Cauldronborn. So many citizens don't make it. <laughs> I mean, well, and they wouldn't. Uh, Queen Akron would make a great imperishable sorceress. Let her escape hmm. and continue to harry the party adventure after adventure, alternating between weal and woe in her dealings with them. She's an amazingly strong character who really kind of grows and, like most of the characters, has a full development arc through the series. She would be wonderful. She would be scary. Yes, she would. <laughs> Doom of the Savage Kings. You know, change the threat a little bit to the forces of Iran and boom, ready. Oh, God. And and with the Jarl? Yeah. Yeah. Small, isolated oh. town. It would be very, very easy to do. And, you know, I got to think, Mark, because you asked me if the Huntsmen were in the Book of Three. And I realized that because once I read the Book of Three, I just don't stop. And so I just read the whole thing <laughs> from one to five again. And so that, that may have kind of blended. They might not show up until Book Two. Okay. But uh, the idea of running a reverse funnel, huh. you know, where each player is given one member of a band of Huntsmen. And, you know, they're trying to live as long as possible. But each time one of them dies... The others get stronger uh, and do it as an elimination funnel and see how far they can get could be creepy dark fun. Yeah. Hmm. What about you, Jim? You know, for that matter, to build on that, you could even give one player a four sheet of Huntsman with everybody else having PCs. Yes, but then those PCs would have to be much more powerful than the Huntsman because Huntsman get strong fast. Yeah, versus numbers. Yeah, we'll see. Oddly enough, Joe Bittman's The One Who Watches From Below 
came to my mind. Oh. You've got the surly dwarf. It's going to get you every time. <laughs> it got me. You know, powerful foes, incredible, strange, creepy flying scouts, and ultimately you're choosing between greed or getting home safely with your pig. Yeah, if you squint hard enough, you can find. <laughs> oh, totally. You could totally do Predain with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was also thinking not in Kansas anymore. Hmm. You know, it's a favorite of mine, but Taryn goes from zero level farmer to experienced adventurer due to chasing a lost item. So, yeah, there's terrible threats. There's powerful friends to be gained and getting home is done in almost as magical a fashion. Okay. And that returning home scene really kind of got to me and yeah for some reason the way Dieter wrote the end of that module just really stuck with me nice. and finally one that i haven't dug into a whole lot in the past nevin pendlebrook's perilous pantry and going over this one prepping for free rpg day i'm realizing that nevin is the pig <laughs> okay and you do need a dwarven guide for some of this underground travel so yeah, it looks like a great little either funnel or first level, and I'm looking through this one going, hmm. Well, there's even undead in it, and you could have those be born, yeah. And it's funny, Mark, because it kind of strikes me as a cross between the younger adult fantasy and The Hobbit. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. yeah, yeah, fits right in there. Well, I think that kind of brings us around to our DCC feature for the show, the adventure that all of us thought about and haven't mentioned yet, DCC number 72, Beyond the Black Gate by Harley Stroh. Summoned by a coven of foul witches, the adventurers are bid through the Black Gate and across the multiverse in pursuit of the crown of the fallen Horned King. There in the icebound gloom of the thrice tenth kingdom, they must pit their wits and brawn against his dread servants. His sullen citadel looms above the darksome woods and elfin ice caves, ruling over the mystic kingdom. Do you dare to ascend the throne of bones and declare yourself master of the wild hunt? Whatever your answer, the land beyond the Black Gate is sure to present a grim challenge for even the hardiest of adventurers. <laughs> and Very nice. it did. This was this was the adventure that saw the retirement of my six level dwarf. Quite and by it's accident. a level Thanks, it's Harley. a level five adventure, mind you. <laughs> yeah, no, this is this is a tough adventure. Uh, you, you were on the top of the curve. Yeah. Well, right off the bat, I mean the whole concept of the Horn King fall. Mm -hmm. That that's kind of somber. Well, and if you're doing kind of a Predane campaign let the party encounter the horned king once let them hear of this war leader the horned king maybe thwart him and then maybe make them feel partially responsible for this fearsome yet tragic figure's downfall mm -hmm. yeah if you make him an ongoing presence in a campaign it gives us a lot more punch i think and since the module's meant for level five characters you got plenty of time to kind of build to this if you're looking ahead if you're looking ahead oh, to running this his hounds would be a wonderful recurring monster mm. who needs the hounds when you can replace them with huntsmen big dogs are scary but the huntsmen are scarier plus i think if you attach this module to another and give the horn king a master such as iran that he answers to that as opposed to the other way around yeah, I think this gives this a lot more hmm. depth. You know, it, in in the Book of Three, the Horn King answers to Iran. And if you do that mm. here, there's kind of this sinister explanation for the root of what is going on. You can completely change the background cause of what has befallen him in this adventure simply by explaining that he has displeased his master, Iran of Anuvan, the Kingdom of the Dead. 
Conversely, you could flip that with Aran actually being an underling of the Horned King. <clears throat> Since this module contains the Horned King as a patron and gives you a patron spell. Does it know. mean that the Horned King doesn't have a patron? Patrons are just powerful beings after all. Oh, fair point. Fair yeah. point. Yeah, I like this tie into the earlier adventurer's lies because in the book he is defeated by calling his true name, which implies that you know, he is some more powerful entity than perhaps in his home realm he is. And the PCs might be tricked into thinking that they have some ability to control him by knowledge of that true name still, but it, it doesn't have any effect in this in this realm that, that he rules over. But I think it ties in thematically with how they could encounter him earlier, how they could encounter him at level five. So I, I like that aspect that you that you you brought up that could potentially be a, a very long arc that's related to the different um, aspects of the Horn King that you see over the course of the, the adventurer's careers. As Harley wrote it, the Thrice Tenth Kingdom is essentially another home to a lot of other blended fairy tales. Mm -hmm. So that could run an entire campaign set in the Thrice Tenth Kingdom. Oh, certainly. Right. You could even use third party products that are more of a fairy tale bend. <clears throat> Daniel and, Vitry Bishop did. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe a couple of them. But you also have, like, warrens of the wild hunt or collections of animals greet you at one point, very much like uh, the characters met at Medwin's. You have an NPC dwarf. That could be Dolly. <laughs> Just saying. He's, he's kind of cranky. Dolly should swear more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, if it wasn't a children's book, I'm sure he would. It, you also find some of the random encounters could be interchangeable with the encounters with huntsmen. Yeah. And I love the fact that there's a cotillion, a cauldron of witches. Yeah, okay, insert collective noun here of witches and maybe the head witch in that could be a stand-in for Queen Ocran or a minion of hers because they're the ones asking for the crown. Yeah, that is true. I could so see Queen Ocran doing that. Yeah. Yeah, see? Mm -hmm. Sorry, I, I could see parts of that. I mean... Honestly, the very beginning of this adventure, which I don't really want to give away since most people probably haven't played it since it's so high level, the very beginning of it I love and you can dovetail it straight out of a funnel, but that would be mean. Oh, yeah, a funnel straight to fifth. Yeah, that's a little more than mean. That's, uh, yeah. that, that's just setting up a, sh a paper shredder after the funnel. I mean, I, I think survived. that, level one. yeah, this, I mean, this is, this kind of goes back to what we've said before that so many of these early Goodman Games modules are such rich resources. And especially for people that may be newer to DCC that weren't part of that first wave of folks that were playing the game and part of the playtesters that would have been looking at these modules as they came out. And like you said, it's a fifth level module, but going back into the archives, as it were, and looking at the material that Harley and Michael and Joseph Goodman were putting out based on this, you know, the first dozen or so adventures that were part of the DCC set... It's just amazing to see all the elements that they were pulling in from all the different appendix and resources. And they, they are being, they're essentially a, a mixture of call outs. And I just love going back to these, these earlier adventures and seeing, you know, how rich they are and, and just how intriguing they are and applicable they are still to use as resources. And just to, really to emphasize that if people haven't had a chance to play through some of these earlier ones as a judge, you know, go out and, and get some copies. Don't always look to the newest as, you know, something to run. Go back and look at the things that were being written in the earlier days of the first, you know, versions of DCC or when DCC was first coming out. Invest some time in bringing these kind of classics back to the rotation. That's what 
my experience was when I looked through this and just like, wow, you know, Hartley is just a genius at, you know, sort of presenting all these different disparate elements and bringing in magic items and, you know, introducing the first new patrons that that are independent of what's in the core book. And and I think that, you know, they just don't get played as much as they should. And and I think that it's uh, it's well worth people's times to go and, and seek out these games or, or, or get run or judges to seek out these adventures to incorporate into their campaigns. Well, especially since this one just went into its second printing. Uh, oh, that's in, right. Yeah, that's right. I forgot second printing that. in March with a with a new adventure by Terry Olson in it. Oh, yes. Yay. That's right. So it is available. And yeah, it's an older adventure. It's a higher level. A lot of people are not going to be familiar with it. A lot of people will not have played it. I am very I feel very fortunate to have played it because I, I had a great time. Harley Stroh pretty much defines I, all my characters. I'm so happy we could finally do it. Well. Yes. <laughs> The name of Terry's Crash of the Sky People, if I'm not mistaken. And I think that'll be a lot of fun if anybody's interested in running it. Terry actually playtested it for us um, last October in Florida. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. So Beyond the Black Gate is uh, just an absolutely phenomenal adventure. Definitely, you need to play it if you get the chance. Yeah, and I, I would say don't even be afraid. If you want a chance to run this and it's your characters aren't at the right level, it can be adapted. And we've seen that time and time again. The DCC system is so swinging at, at various levels. As a judge, you can somewhat do that on the fly, you know, in terms of scaling the monsters. Put a little thought into it. I think you can you can make this adventure even something that you can take from a beginning or low-level character's uh, entry point uh, into a powerful patron and do something with it from that aspect as well. Well, honestly, it could actually play out in three parts. I'm surprised we've, I think my group completed it in two sessions, maybe two and a half, because not everything was delved into. Well, that, and um, I think I became the Horned King, like, midway through the second session. <laughs> um, yeah, you, you guys hadn't hit everything. Uh, you... And then we hit yeah. things really, really hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right. There were quite a few challenges that had things not gone the way they did, I would have ended up pulling a couple of hit dice off of them to adapt it, as Mark said. So absolutely play with it, adapt it if you need to. And that goes for every adventure. If it's not fun, make it fun. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that takes us to your road crew and convention shout outs. Ooh, yes. The shout outs. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck yours now. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, the first round of winners was declared their monsters triumphant. The second round of winners was heralded for their character classes ascendant. The third round of winners was announced their spells truly flogenstonic. The fourth round of winners reported their creativity having run amok. Currently, we are still on round five at the time of this recording, which is maps. We'll see how that goes. By the time you hear this, that'll be done. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but ladies and gentlemen, this is your chance to win a copy of Matthew Goyfon's Ultra Rare Adventure Super Number One Food Tower, the adventure specifically written to be run in North Texas RPG Con in 2015. Only available there until it was available here. See what you started, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> it's excellent, though. Uh, by the time you hear this, of course, we will have moved on from maps to our final phase of the competition. June's theme is art send us your dcc styled art which can be pretty gonzo and we will be entering it into the contest you can email your entries to the hub at sanctum.media or mail them to sanctum Sacorum contest 4915 rattlesnake hammock road number 139 naples florida 34113 and you can win 
50 foot ferrozine module number one super number one food tower 2015 north texas rpg convention edition with runners up to receive a draw from the prize closet of mystery who won april closet of mystery <laughs> April's winner was Daniel J. Bishop, who stuffed the ballot box, but he stuffed it with really great stuff. Uh, he submitted so many entries that he will be appearing probably for the next two issues. Uh, his winning <laughs> entry was The Altar of Woeful Consumption. Yay! And our runner-up was Ian Shears' patron spell, Infernal Voice. A spell Ooh. for the patron he submitted, Lilith. Nice. Creepy. Okay. Contest spiel over? Prize closet of history. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Don't forget to check out the Appendix M Book Club podcast. Judge Jeff Goad is also running a bi-weekly MCC campaign at the Brooklyn Strategist, last we heard. And his podcast co-host Hoy is running DCC there. See the DCC NYC meetup group for updates on book club meetings or find Jeff online. And Nixick is running DCC funnels from 2 to 6 p.m. every Saturday at Tacoma Games in Tacoma, Washington. Mighty Tim DeShane is hosting a bi-weekly DCC campaign at the Revival Brewing Company in Cranston, Rhode Island. And the DCC Road crew in northern Indiana is getting a little insane. We've got Judge Joan of Arc Troyer still running two weekly games. Thursday nights from 6 to 10, you can find her running an open table at Better World Books in Goshen, Indiana. She's also at Secret Door Games in Elkhart, Indiana every Saturday, rotating on a bi-weekly basis. And Maureen is also running over there as well. She's recruiting like crazy and yeah, Indiana's the place to be, man. Mighty Judge Maureen. <laughs> yes. Mike Carlson is running an open table DCC game on the second and fourth Mondays of the month at Everybody Reads Books and Stuff in Lansing, Michigan. Games start at 6.30. I love the name of that place. <laughs> That's great. Everybody Reads Books and Stuff. <laughs> Chris Lorisella is running DCC at Bell Book and Comic in Dayton, Ohio. Look for the guy in the DCC shirt. Christian Bird is hosting a regular open game on Tuesdays at the Beer Temple in Chicago. North Texas RPG Con will be going on in the Weston DFW Airport Hotel from June 7th to 10th. And there'll be a number of uh, DCC judges and players, including myself there, as well as all, everybody that usually comes from Texas, as well as all over the states uh, to participate. The contingent. <laughs> the contingent. <laughs> Free RPG Day is two weeks away. Our free RPG Day venue list is up on the site, but we still need your help so we can be sure that everyone can find their local DCC game. At the time of recording, we have venues in Australia, Brazil, Canada, Italy, South Korea, Spain, the United Kingdom, and across 31 U.S. states. We are a mere 19 venues shy of last year's record number, and I think we can top it. I, I'm, I'm thinking we can break 100. Help us do it. Help us find those games. Send us the details of what you're running this year. Give us your FLGS uh, or venue location, when you're running, and if you know ahead of time what you're running. The end result, players can find your games. Also look for our free RPG Day companion at select locations. We'll be putting up a list of the judges offering it at their table. Yes, there will again be a Sanctum Secorum free RPG Day hard copy release. Woohoo! And all three of us are going to be running various games on Free RPG Day at our local. Oh my God, we're running for Free RPG Weekend. Uh, oh, oh my gosh, <laughs> we're running twenty-four <laughs> hours in two days. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's so awesome. Bring it. Yeah. <laughs> 
And overlapping this, we have Origins Game Fair, June 13th to 17th in Columbus, Ohio. Among the judges present will be Michael Curtis, Brendan LaSalle, Judge Julian Bernick of, I don't know, some podcast, uh, Erica King, and Chris Sellers. And of course, Gen Con is coming up in August 2nd through 5th in Indianapolis, Indiana. And we will see most everybody there. I think uh, there'll be the biggest DCC number and MCC number of games, uh, even surpassing last year is, is what uh, what is going on. And if you and the tournament and the, the tournament. tournament, yeah, the the new expanded tournament. Uh, so if you are looking to test your metal against other DCC groups. Get together a group of six players and uh, attempt to find a spot uh, in the tournament. I think uh, by this time, registration may have taken all of those spots, but a few off uh, off the list. But uh, if you are lucky enough to still find spots available, it will be a blast. It was one of the most fun events that I think we've put on uh, in, in Gen Con, in my experience. And it was, it's just going to be even more so this year. I've seen the new stuff that's coming out, uh, and it is excellent as, as usual. So, And I'd like to give a special shout-out to Other Selves, the publishers of Classicos del Mazmuero. They're stepping up to ensure that Free RPG Day carries forward in Spain, even though there is absolutely no retailer support in Spain. They are offering a free translation of Intrigue the Court of Chaos to Spanish judges for uh, to, awesome. to incentivize them to run for free RPG day. That's how you do it. That is keeping with the community spirit. That's keeping with the Goodman game spirit. That is, hey, we don't have a free RPG day event, but we can still have a free RPG day. And uh, and that's, I think, really special and uh, and worthy of a shout out. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. And what better way to celebrate Father's Day? Right. Yeah. <laughs> take your kid out for gaming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Take your kid to Estero, Florida, where we will be at Dungeon Game <laughs> on Sunday. Because on Hugh Hefley doesn't need another tie. <laughs> <laughs> A white stripey tie. Red and white stripes. Yep. Want to see your creation in the DCC community's only free monthly e-zine? In addition to the contest going through June, keep an eye out for our future topics, and we can include your material in the show companion. We'd love to see what sort of things you have created based on your own appendix and reading. Keep in mind, it could be something we've covered in the past, something we're covering in the future. Also remember, we have quite a few things in our prize closet of mystery to give away so that Jen can stop hearing me say prize closet of mystery. In return for contributions, we've got zines, modules, some great appendix N, some other great literature. You can submit your creations to us at the hub at sanctum.media. Are you running road crew games? Drop us a line, let us know. Join the Guardians of Secrets. Send us your upcoming events for inclusion. Once you've got a few successfully run events under your belt, you are inducted into the roles of the Guardians of Secrets. You can enter your events directly onto the calendar. People can find your games easily, and members will periodically receive exclusive items for their tables, such as this year's free RPG Day companion. So keep that in mind. If you're listening and looking for a game, go to Sanctum.media. Click on the Community Events link, scroll through there, and find something in your area. In the meantime, if you're enjoying the show, drop us an email, comment on the podcast, chime in on our G Plus page. Please help us by posting a review on iTunes. Those reviews and ratings on iTunes bump us up in the network, make it easier for new people to find us. We want people to find us. We want them to join our community. So we hope we've inspired you. Jen, any last words? Game on. Mark? 
prize closet of mystery. I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. Be inspired. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum Podcast. Join us again next time when the Sanctum Secorum studies The Maker of Universes by Philip Jose Farmer. The Sanctum Secorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2018.